Please be advised, this podcast deals with subject matters that are difficult to listen to, including murder, sexual assault, and suicide. The podcast also contains crude, coarse, or adult language. My name is Kirsten Karen, and you are listening to Her Name Podcast, a vintage case file series. This season, her name is Norma Rodeback. When Norma didn't return home from her shift at Quality Drug on Wednesday, June 13th, 1956, her sister Janice was extremely concerned. Janice waited until the early morning hours and then began calling around to friends and other family members to locate Norma. When she could not be found, Janice contacted the police department. Officers were initially thinking that she was out with other friends and had just forgotten to check in with either Janice or their parents. So all through Thursday, phone calls were made trying to locate her. Norma's family insisted that Norma would not just leave without telling anyone. Still, the police didn't appear to be particularly concerned, but they agreed to look around. So on Friday afternoon, a Vernal police officer by the name of Jack Boren found a broken necklace on the ground uh, near what appeared to be bloodstains, and he found this just a few blocks from where Norma had been living with Janice and Niall and my dad as a little boy. Hannah Rodeback, who is Norma's mother, identified the necklace as one belonging to Norma, and she did this on Saturday morning, uh, which again brings me to something that's kind of weird. Why did the police wait until the following day to show the necklace to Hannah? That puzzles me a little bit. It, the way things work, I guess, in my head is on Friday afternoon when Jack, or I'm sorry, Officer Boren found the necklace, like, why wasn't it, like, within a couple of hours, if not sooner, shown to Norma's mother to verify, yes, this is hers? Nevertheless, uh, after that identification, the police in the town mobilized to search for Norma because it was now clear to everyone that Norma was in danger. According to the Vernal Express newspaper, quote, nearly every available man in the LDS wards, the Civil Air Patrol, and other groups, and individuals comprising about 800 men, combed large sections of the county. 800 men. For a small town, that is a lot of people. They searched on Saturday for the majority of the day and again on Sunday after church services were over. And out of all of those people, the one who found her was one of the last people to see her alive on Wednesday night. And that person was her boss, Dwayne Anderson, the man who owned the drugstore where Norma worked. Coincidence? Who knows? To be clear, I am not accusing Dwayne Anderson of being involved in Norma's disappearance and death. I just think it's really super weird. So I tried to do some research on Dwayne Anderson. For a man who owned the two drugstores in town, there is almost no information about him at all. Again, um, respecting my grandmother's wishes, I did not reach out to anyone in Vernal about him or anything else. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's really frustrating and curious to me that there's just no information about him. I'm, on the one hand, I've spent more than half my life benefiting from the information age kind of technology that we have. So maybe my expectation is skewed. On the other hand, I feel like the Vernal Express reported everything that ever happened, ever. It's a small town from the 1950s, right? So how is there really nothing of note? 
about Dwayne Anderson other than his role as Norma's boss and the one who found her body. I don't know. This is super, super weird and it will always be a huge question mark for me and it will always bother me. At any rate, Dwayne and another man from town by the name of Ray Kundick, who was the manager of the local J.C. Penney's, found Norma in the Upper Ashley Canal. It's about four miles south of Vernal proper. It appeared she had been thrown from a small wooden bridge not far away. The gentle current of the canal water had carried her down until she stopped with her head resting underneath a tree on the bank of the canal. One of her shoes, a ballet flat, was recovered 10 feet from the bridge and her wallet, containing 38 cents, was found approximately 75 feet from her body. I've been to that place. It was a few years ago, but my grandmother got in the car and we drove out. She showed me where it was. The area is still fairly isolated, but it's not, it's not so out of the way that it's impossible to find. It's really quiet there kind of hushed and oddly peaceful. While her resting place in the canal may have been peaceful, her journey there was anything but. Norma's body was covered with bruises and scratches and bite marks. Her clothing was ripped and torn. There was an automobile upholstery clamp embedded in her right elbow. Now, some accounts refer to this as a spring, but most of what I read talk about it as an upholstery clamp. So, whichever it was, that is just insane to me. Embedded in her elbow. So, clearly, she fought as hard as she possibly could within the confines of an automobile. She was in a fight for her life inside an automobile. And although Ashley Canal is a few miles outside of town, like I said, it's not particularly difficult to find. Not then, not now. While some in the police force felt the killer must be local because the canal was a little bit out of the way, Others seemed reluctant to believe that one of their own could be capable of such a horrifying act. Now, fueling this idea was the discovery of a California newspaper with a publication date of June 11th, um, which was two days before Norma's body was, uh, or excuse me, two days before Norma's murder. And although her body wasn't found until June 17th, there was no evidence that Norma had been kept captive or anything like that. So they do believe she was killed the night she was abducted. So they find this California newspaper from June 11th near her body, which was a little bit weird. So who did it? Well, the Vernal police were about to throw an insanely wide net to see who they might catch, because the truth is that at the time, they really had no fucking clue. So let's look at kind of some of the leads that they had and some of the suspects they identified. The very first lead was provided by a man by the name of Nevo Lizcombe. Nevo lived across the road from where the broken necklace was located. He told police that he saw a dark-colored sedan parked in that location right about the time Norma would have been there um, on her way back from work. Nevo was either sitting in his yard or on his porch, depending on the news source. He noticed the car. He could hear the rise and fall of voices inside the car. Unfortunately, he couldn't identify how many people were in the car or the genders of those people or anything beyond that. 
I do think it's worth noting here that Nevo doesn't come out and say, oh, it was totally Carl Dow's car. He just said it was a dark sedan. He didn't see a license plate, but it also didn't seem like he recognized it. He did say that he was positive there was no struggle going on because if there had been, he would have stepped in. So then that kind of leaves me wondering, okay, he saw this car, but was this car even involved at all in Norma's abduction? I don't know. <clears throat> the uh, next lead came courtesy of a waitress in the small town of Roosevelt. So I've got to say, I've spent some time there in the last couple of years, and there's like nothing going on in Roosevelt. <laughs> no offense to anybody who lives in Roosevelt, it just, it just seems like everything closes up there at like 8 p.m. and I don't know it it was it felt even smaller than than Vernal which still feels a bit small to me so and that's not a bad thing it it just there's not a lot going on in Roosevelt so I can't really begin to fathom how much less bustling the town was in 1956 but at any rate, this waitress had heard about Norma's case on the radio, and then she saw two men come into her restaurant whose faces were badly, badly scratched. So she called the police. It turns out these men were driving a car with a California license plate, and they were picked up by the highway patrol. They were questioned, denied knowing Norma or having anything to do with her death. Uh, when asked about the scratches on their faces, they said they came from, um, they had been on a fishing excursion in Colorado, and the scratches were inflicted as they moved through the brush to their fishing spot. To which I say, bullshit. Why, why, why would you let branches just slap you in the face over and over and over again? Even if your hands are full, you can duck your head, you can like move an arm in front of your face for protection. That just seemed like the biggest bullshit excuse. Like, this is how I got these scratches. Uh, branches? I, that just, I, no, I, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it at all. Adding to that, is uh, they denied knowing who Norma was, but they were identified as having been in the drugstore the night that Norma disappeared, and guess who was helping them? So they admitted they had kidded around, those were their words, quote, kidded around with Norma, but they didn't know her name. And when asked to account for their whereabouts later that same night, being June 13th, they told the police they slept in their car because they didn't have enough money to stay anywhere. And so the Vernal police cleared them as suspects and let them go on their merry way. Uh, they determined they were telling the truth because despite aggressive questioning, they never changed their story. The names of these two intrepid fishermen with a kink for being hit and scratched in the face by tree branches. Um, the names have been kept out of all the news articles and the detective magazines, so I have absolutely no way to find out who they were outside the context of the very brief mentions they received in the media. Here's another gem of a suspect, and this one just absolutely blows me away. So a woman in Wisconsin calls the police when she receives a letter from her estranged husband in which he confesses to killing Norma. The man, who is also not identified by his actual name in any of the reports or articles, was living and working in Salt Lake City at the time. He told police he wrote the quote confession to his wife as a test. In his mind, if she really loved him, she would not call the cops. And I really hope this woman divorced the shit out of this guy. Like, who, who does that? That is the weirdest fucking thing I've ever heard. So, he claims that he'd been working all day on June 13th. 
His boss confirmed this. He was off work by 6 p.m. So today, the drive from Salt Lake to Vernal is about three hours. Uh, Back then, the false confessor claimed there's no way he could have made the drive in time to kill Norma after she finished her shift. I disagree with that. I think that he did have time to do that. However, I also can't find any hint of a connection between him and Norma, so I tend to think he was not a killer, just a total asshole. Another suspect that's briefly mentioned in some of the news articles is a man by the name of James Beck. Uh, The article, the one article I found that mentioned him by name, specifically by name, I guess, is so old that I'm not sure if it's James L. Beck or James D. Beck, Uh, but he was considered to be a dangerous suspect and wanted in the sexual assault of two teenage girls, one who was only 15 and one who was 17. Uh, He was briefly considered a suspect in the disappearance of a man by the name of Max Arden Heaps in Cedar City who uh, was working at a gas station and and disappeared. And I will be looking into that uh, a little bit more later because that was just a really bizarre uh, story. So I'm not sure if if James Beck was actually involved in uh, Max Heap's disappearance. There was also a brief mention of the serial killer Leslie Mad Dog Irvin, Uh, Again, a whole separate topic. Irvin could not possibly have had anything to do with Norma's uh, death because he was in jail at the time. And Beck was questioned by police in relation to Norma's murder, but also quickly dismissed as a suspect. So as of June 24, excuse me, as of June 24th, police had no solid leads, no solid suspects. So what can they do but start questioning Vernal residents all over again? Have you ever participated in a routine on a regular basis? Maybe your daily drive to work or home from work or to your local grocery store? and suddenly noticed a house or a building, a pond maybe, a sign that you'd never noticed before. Thousands and thousands of times you must have passed it and suddenly one day there it is. Your vision no longer slides over it. It's there and you think, what the fuck, how did I miss that? I never knew that was there. That happened to me this morning on my way to work. I stopped for a construction worker at a place that I don't normally stop and noticed that there was a a trail and a canal. I'd never seen it before. I have lived in this location for months. I have taken that route to work back and forth so many times and it wasn't until today that I noticed this trail that ran right past a canal and there's a sign that says Murray Canal Trail or something like that and I've never ever noticed it. I had a moment like that last week going through all the newspaper articles, all of the magazine articles, all the notes that I've made about this case. I've read through all of this material over the years, uh, hundreds of times. And something finally jumped out at me that had never really clicked before. I'd never truly seen it. And for me, it's changed 
almost everything. My final conclusions about this... Well, I, I already know that probably most of the people in my family aren't going to see it the way that I do. And you know what? Some of you might not see it this way either. And that's okay. Because the one thing that I am certain of with Norma's case is absolute uncertainty. I was in a cemetery the first time I remember hearing Norma's name. I don't remember how old I was, but it was when I was living in Vernal and that didn't occur for a terribly long time. I think I was only there for three years and it was for first, second, and third grade. So what would I have been? Somewhere between six and nine when this memory took place? From what I can recall, I feel that we must have been in the cemetery on Memorial Day because the vague memories that I do have involve placing flowers on graves of people I didn't know. I think as kids we don't pay a whole lot of attention to some of these things. From what I recall, it was a hushed conversation between my mother and one of my aunts. And all I can really remember is hearing Norma's name her relation to my grandmother, the fact that she'd been murdered and that one of her murderers, quote, felt so bad that he killed himself. The seed has been planted in my brain for decades that Norma was attacked by more than one person. That seed has had over 30 years to take root and grow. And I'm telling you this because in, in this particular area, I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's possible for me to be objective and impartial. This has become part of my truth, this idea. It's been part of my family history for decades. And there are a couple of reasons that this idea has been perpetuated. Uh, one of them being something said to my grandmother at one point in the investigation, uh, the FBI was involved. And I don't know if it was one of those investigators or someone who was married to one of those investigators or knew them, but they mentioned uh, finding uh, foreign skin samples under Norma's nails. Two different foreign skin samples under Norma's nails. I don't know who this investigator was. And since all of the records in Norma's case file have been destroyed, I cannot confirm this in any way whatsoever. Nobody can. But like I said, it's, it's part of my family's story and my family's memory and so it has become part of Norma's story. The second reason well okay so the second reason that there may have been two murderers I think kind of hinges on this idea that that Carl was involved and as I've stated in, in the past, I'm still not entirely convinced that he was or that he acted alone at least. And we're going to dive more into that a little bit over the next couple of episodes. One of the reasons that uh, this idea of two killers came about was that apparently Carl had a really close friend that he did a lot of things with in, in town and certain members of my family felt that that friend acted really weird around them after uh, Norma's murder and Carl's suicide. Um, 
And I'm not going to say who that person was. I do know his name. I have decided to not dive into it uh, too much. And, and a I'm doing that out of respect for both this individual, uh, who I've honestly come to the conclusion wasn't involved, and also for my grandmother, who doesn't want me to poke my nose um, into places where it may not be welcome. So we're going to leave his name out of it. Uh, even though he's no longer living, uh, I just don't think it's fair to uh, start speculating there where I've got just nothing really to work with other than feelings and things like that. I had originally planned to start this uh, telling kind of from the end to the beginning, but the more that I look into it, the less linear it is in any sense of the word, forwards, backwards, it doesn't matter. Uh, so I want to go back a little bit and give you some more details about Carl's part in this story. Uh, as you know, Carl Donnell Dow died, died by suicide on June 27th, 1956. His body was found by his father and, I believe, brother-in-law, uh, just west of Vernal. According to Carl's death certificate, and this is a quote from his death certificate, from the coroner, I guess, quote, this man left a suicide note, then took 30-30 rifle to mountainside where he put muzzle in his mouth and fired the weapon, blowing entire top off head. Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ is my part, not the coroner's part. Uh, that seemed like a lot of detailed information for a death certificate. This wasn't an autopsy report. This is a death certificate. This is public record. You can go look at it. Uh, I was just surprised that all of that was there. So what happened was uh, around 4 or 5 a.m. on the 27th of June, Carl's wife woke up to find that he was missing. He had left a note that she found that was very concerning to her, and she immediately called Carl's father. I don't have the entire transcript of the letter, but according to my research, one passage stated, quote, I don't like the Salt Lake City police. They work too hard. They have no heart, unquote. So... Carl's father notified the police, and everybody is searching for him all throughout the day. They find him in the evening, and a second suicide note was found in his abandoned car. This is what was partially published in the papers. This is what I have uh, relayed to you. The full note... Um, in some places, it's referred to as being three pages long, uh, which seems awfully long to me. But again, I don't know, I mean, three pages. I could write three pages on a post-it note and it would be short. I don't know if this was like normal, whatever, eight and a half by 11 paper. I, I just don't know. And, and that's what is so, maddening for me about all of this is I just don't know. There, there's not enough for me to really dig into and, and get the answers that I want. And isn't that just life, I guess, sometimes. At any rate, uh, upon finding Carl's note and his body, uh, the sheriff of Uinta County or Vernal uh, 
everyone declared the case closed all done wrapped in this neat little package i guess uh, but what prompted carl to do this he was uh, questioned by police the night before his death. Uh, the police at this point, uh, this had been about two weeks out, they were desperate. I don't think that it's a stretch to use that word. They were fucking desperate. This was their second round of, of questioning uh, locals. Someone had reported to them that Carl made Norma nervous, which is something that my grandmother has confirmed. Uh, one thing that I do want to keep in mind though, and that I want you to keep in mind as well, is that clearly from, again, evidence that we have, Carl seems to have suffered from some mental health issues and challenges. And this is where my spidey sense starts tingling a little bit. We have to kind of bear in mind that there was just a, a horrendous stigma around mental health during the 1950s. I mean, I, I feel like there's still one now, but back then it, it was even harder to navigate if you were dealing with some of these things. And, you know, I, I have worked in kind of customer service oriented jobs for most of my life and I did as a teenager and there were definitely times that, that people, in particular adult males, made me nervous, made me uneasy and sometimes I would say that that, that feeling of discomfort was 100% warranted. And there are other times looking back, I, I don't think that it was. But one of the difficulties that young women or any kind of, I don't know if I want to say the word vulnerable, but yes, I guess I will say vulnerable, uh, people experience is you don't, you don't know who's going to be the nice guy, who's going to be the guy that attacks you, who's going to be the guy who's just being friendly, Who's going to be the guy that has like the, you know, sketchy motives? You just, you just don't know. So it's hard to read some of these behaviors. And if Carl was bipolar, which is honestly my guess at this point, uh, there may have been some mood swings. He may have come off a little, little odd. So I don't, I don't fault Norma for being nervous uh, around him. And without having really any context to go on for any of these situations, I don't fault Carl for that either. Uh, you know, there are customers I had that I would rather have not helped because I'm sure they were just trying to be friendly but came across like just like a little too much. It may have been something as innocent as that. I don't know. What I do know is that this was enough to inspire the police to ask Carl to come back in and answer some more questions. So they did. And they specifically asked him to account for his whereabouts on the night of June 13th which he did. Now, according to his statement, he dropped his wife off at 9.30 p.m. to see a movie at the theater, which appeared to be right next to the drugstore where Norma worked. According to his statement, he then went home. Um, they had two small children at home, so while they were sleeping, he was out working on a trailer of some kind. And he then stated that by 10.30 he was asleep in the living room, well, that he was listening to his radio in the living room and fell asleep. He then picked his wife up from the movie theater at 11.45 p.m. after her movie was over, and they went home. 
So the police are concerned about the, what was it, two and a half hours-ish that Carl was more or less alone and unaccounted for. There were two Salt Lake City detectives who were on loan, um, essentially, trying to help the Vernal police out with this case. So we've got officers Duncombe and Roberts from the Salt Lake City PD who are questioning Carl at this point. And according to one of the accounts that I have, um, they asked Carl to show them his teeth. He complied and was then allowed to leave. And as he was leaving, one of the officers um, sort of loudly mentioned that they were going to get impressions of the bite marks left on, uh, to, to match with the bite marks that were left on Norma's body. The officers at, at some point uh, with all of this did check into Carl's alibi as much as they could. So they interviewed employees at the Vernal Theater and one of them distinctly remembered Carl's wife making a phone call at about 11.45 to have him come pick her up. The employee also remembered Carl calling into the movie theater at about 11.15 to ask if his wife had tried to contact him. And the employee told Carl that the movie his wife was uh, seeing would not be over for about another half hour. The police found this extremely suspicious, and I can sort of see where they're coming from. But at the same time, I don't know if I feel like it's as big of a deal as they did. So from one point of view, it's like, well, why would he call the theater to see if his wife had missed him somehow? That must mean that he was out. Then again, <laughs> If your pregnant wife is going to call you when her movie ends so you can pick her up, but you fall asleep, um, you may be worried when you kind of wake up with a start like, oh crap, did I miss her call somehow? Let me call and see if she tried to get a hold of me. Or if you were out working on something in the yard. I, I mean, I don't know. It's Maybe it's just because I'm so connected and I'm so used to, you know, always having things like caller ID and my cell phone and all of this. Like being able to reach people is so easy that the idea of, of not having that, like I, if I'm supposed to pick somebody up and I can't just look at my phone and go, okay, good, they didn't call, I must be fine, they didn't text, I'm cool. I don't know, that kind of gives me some anxiety. So, was this suspicious? Maybe, maybe not. The other thing that bothers me is, you know, it kind of seemed like they, they thought Carl's story was super sketchy and they decided they thought he did it, but then they just let him go because they didn't have really any reason to have him stay. Uh, they did tell him they wanted him to come take a polygraph test. But it also kind of seemed like their questioning got pretty aggressive and they were saying, no, you, you did this and we know you did this. So, you know, we can't hold you, but don't go anywhere and come back tomorrow kind of a thing. Uh, I have to be honest that I, I wonder if this is a case of the police pressuring someone with a mental illness to the point that they feel like they have no alternatives. I don't think that it's any kind of a stretch to point to the interrogation as the thing that pushed Carl to end his life. And as I've stated before, I am well and truly bothered by Carl's confession. And there are a few things kind of specifically that that really bother me. So the letter starts out, in, in a sense I feel like sort of clinical, clinical is the wrong word, technical, where he says, I killed Norma Rodeback about 10.30 on the evening of June 13th, 1956, Midway, Main Street and 3rd South on 2nd West, 
where the necklace was found she had on. That's super detailed, like what you would expect to see in like a court document or some kind of official report, right? So he gives a precise time. He writes out the whole date, which I just think is bizarre. Like why put the year in there? Like we, we know what year it is, right? He gives kind of the exact point where he says the murder took place and then references, you know, it's where the necklace was found. The Vernal Express had previously published information about her disappearance. They they even, in, in previous editions, and this is something that I feel like everybody in town would have been reading, they stated specifically, I feel like I stumbled over that, they stated specifically that she left her job at Quality Drug at about 10.20, was seen at the accident on 239 South and 2nd West at about 10.30. And then they also stated the location of uh, where that broken necklace was found. So this was all information that was accessible to everybody. He then goes on to say in his note, in 45 minutes, I had choked her to death and put her in the canal. So now I feel confused. So he says that he killed her in this particular location um, between Main Street and 3rd South on 2nd West. He says, that's where I killed her. But then he says, I don't know, like, it's just worded weird for me, I guess. In 45 minutes, I had choked her to death, but it just sounds like at 1030, you choked her to death. So in 45 minutes, she was choked to death and put in the canal. So was he saying that he choked her to death and then it took him 45 minutes to drive to the canal? Because it doesn't take 45 minutes to drive to that canal. I mean... I don't think you can drive anywhere in Vernal in 45 minutes because you would no longer be in Vernal after 45 minutes. It's a small town. Uh, The Vernal Express had also reported how she died and where her body was found multiple times. So remember, it was verified that Carl had called the movie theater at 11.15. So it's almost, to me, it seems like he's trying to make this work with the timeline so Norma and and this is is kind of crazy to me like you know at a time where there's no CCTV or anything like that we we have a pretty pretty good timeline of where she was uh, between her uh, work place at the drugstore and where she may have disappeared just because of that little fender bender accident thing or whatever that so many people reported seeing her at that we know where she was so her that's kind of a a firm thing really we know when she left work we know when she passed the scene of that accident and it's everything after that that we don't know and on the other hand Carl had a pretty specific timeline for parts of where he was that evening because of dropping his wife off at the theater, because of making the phone call and then picking her up again. So we've got two people with different timelines that are very well documented and he's trying to make this fit. Do you see what I'm getting at here? And maybe it did fit, but why be so technical about it? So a couple other parts of the confession that bother me. He says, quote, I do not know just what happened. And then later, I've heard all sorts of stories of what I had done to her. He specifically says, I could not lay with her, which again, super biblical term. Um, He's denying raping her. And then at another point in the letter says, it does not seem like I have done this. So after laying out very specifically at the beginning of his note, I killed her, 
then later we have, well, I didn't rape her and it doesn't seem like I've done this. I don't know just what happened. So he's writing this, this letter right before he puts a gun in his mouth. I just don't understand what the motivation would be for holding information back. Why can't he tell us more than this? Why does he deny raping her? That one really bothers me. Uh, some people that I've discussed this with say that like, oh, well, nobody wants to admit to raping someone. Okay. Nobody should be raping anybody ever. And I guess I can understand someone guilty of that, not wanting to admit it, but somehow that's worse than murder. If you're trying to ease your conscience and make some final pronouncements, uh, why, why only admit to part of it? And then there's the lack of follow-up. To my knowledge, the police never tried to match Carl's teeth with the bite marks, despite what they had said um, when Carl was being interrogated. Nor did they try to match the tire tracks found at the canal with Carl's car. And speaking of Carl's car, was it missing an upholstery clamp or, or spring? Because it seems like that would have been a really big fucking clue. If there was damage to the interior of his car, how did his wife not notice it and report it? I have to wonder if, if Carl was made to believe that he did it. Could this be a false confession? Was a vulnerable young man suffering from mental illness coerced into believing he committed a horrible crime? Is there more than one victim in this case? When I first started uh, working on this podcast, I uh, sent freedom of information requests about both Norma and Carl regarding Norma's uh, the FBI concluded records potentially responsive to your request were destroyed. That's a direct quote from the letter I received back from them. And the response I received about Carl was, we were unable to identify law enforcement and or administrative records responsive to your request. Therefore, your request is being closed. I knew it was more than a long shot to receive anything about Norma, but I really was surprised there was nothing for Carl. I guess I expected some kind of charge or something, but there was nothing. Just one dead end after another. There's such a short space between life and death. I have to be honest, right now, I don't think that Carl killed Norma. I think that he falsely confessed, and I recognize that I could be completely wrong, but that's my feeling right now. Something just clicked for me again after one of my hundreds of thousands of who knows how many readings of articles and it just suddenly I saw that the more likely criminals were those two guys with the California license plate and the scratches on their faces. I have to face the reality that I will never know what happened. And I will never know for sure who is responsible. 
but I did some pretty good digging on Carl and I could find absolutely zero physical evidence linking him to Norma's death. There's just, there's none. I don't know that the police ever tried to match, like I said, um, his teeth to the bite marks found on Norma's body. I have nothing to indicate his car tires were compared to the marks found at the canal. Of course, there's no DNA testing in the 1950s. The only thing we have linking Carl to the crime is Carl, his suicide confession. And I'm just unnerved about the timing of his death. I'm unnerved by some of the things that I would have expected to be in a, a suicide confession that aren't there and some things that are there that I would never have expected to be there. So once I got this idea in my head that he may have falsely confessed, that maybe it was somebody else, I started studying up on false confessions a bit and I've done quite a bit of research. Obviously I'm not an expert, but um, there was something that struck me in an article about the uh, Central Park Five, and this is an article by Evan Nestorak entitled Coerced to Confess, The Psychology of False Confessions. This includes an interview with um, an individual by the name of Saul Casson. Casson is a psychology professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and Williams College. The article, and this is from 2014, indicated that Casson had researched false confessions for over 30 years at that point in time. And when asked about false confessions by suspects in a crime, Casson said this, quote, the reason why people confess to crimes they did not commit is because they are subject to pressures of the interrogation, a highly aggressive form of social influence. In the interrogation, especially in American-style interrogation, people can become so stressed and so broken down that they start to feel so hopeless about their current situation that they come to believe in a rational way a confession is in their best interest. In some cases, they get so confused by the fact that American police are permitted to lie about evidence, and I mean lie about DNA, prints, surveillance footage, polygraph results, that in some cases people accused of crimes, particularly kids and others who are limited intellectually, become so confused by the lies that they actually come to believe they have committed this crime they did not commit. They wonder why it is they can't recall it. They are led to believe that it is possible for people to transgress without awareness, for people to do something terrible and repress it. So they develop basically an inference that they must have committed this crime." Unquote. The cops thought Carl did it, but didn't have enough evidence to charge or hold him. But then again, the cops also thought a whole bunch of other people had done it at various points. From my perspective, the cops were ill-equipped to handle any of this. One of the memories my grandmother has of the investigation involves one of the officers locating a discarded petticoat they thought was Norma's. When they brought it to my grandma to identify, she was furious. See, the, the petticoat was huge and Norma was extremely petite. My grandma said she felt like they didn't even know who they were looking for. And it's important to keep in mind that the police were under tremendous pressure to solve this. I Before I called them desperate, and I stand by that, I think they were desperate to solve it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You should be desperate to solve crimes, but not to the point that you're just like flailing your arms about and whoever you hit is going to be the one that you decide is good for it. I think when they questioned Carl, uh, they were just at that stage of desperation. And to be fair, they may have had good reason for bringing him in because of that comment made by, you know, the, the local girl who said that 
Carl made her nervous. Um, it was also reported that she had said that Norma had told her Carl followed her home one night. And I can't, I can't confirm this with anybody that that, that is, if that did happen, it's not something that Norma ever told anybody else. Just this one other girl and who, I don't even know who that is. So I know that Carl made Norma nervous, but again, it's pretty clear that he was struggling with major mental issues. And, and as I've stated previously, I do think that he was probably bipolar. Maybe it was more. I just think that when Carl left the interrogation that night, he was pretty rattled. I would imagine he spent all that night thinking about what the cops told him. And I think he convinced himself that he did it without being fully aware of it. There is nothing that he outlines in his confession that was not already reported in the papers, at least to my knowledge. Is it possible that he committed rape and murder on a super tight timeline without leaving a trace of evidence linking him to the crime? Yeah, that's possible. But is it likely? I don't think so. I really do think it was the two out-of-town fishermen. They were seen in the drugstore the night Norma disappeared. They drove a dark-colored sedan. They had scratches on their faces that were so severe that they still showed up days after this supposed fishing trip occurred. They were traveling from California, so that California newspaper found at the scene makes sense. And they weren't on any kind of timeline because they slept in their car. Nobody can confirm their alibi, such as it is. I really wish I knew their real names. I, I wish I could know with certainty what happened. When I had that moment of realization, I guess, for me, where I just thought, holy shit, you know what makes more sense than Carl being the one who did it is these two fuckers who were supposedly out fishing. And the minute... I settled on that in my head as, as I think they did it. I realized that this is quite possibly a bigger tragedy than I had originally thought. I know I could be wrong about this. I just don't think that I am. I wish I wish I could know with certainty what happened. I wish I wasn't at a complete dead end. I wish that I could do right by both Carl and Norma, and I wish that their young lives had not ended so suddenly and so horribly. And I guess for now, that's all I really know, is just what I wish. I wish I knew more about Norma. I recently spoke to my grandmother about her, and I asked, what was Norma like? And my grandmother reminded me that Norma was just 17. She hardly had a chance to live. I wish I knew more about her. This changes you, my grandma kept saying. This changes you. I've asked my dad what he remembers about 
his aunt Norma, and he doesn't remember very much. But he did relay a story, and he's not sure if it's his memory or one that came into his own personal history because he heard the story so many times that it became his memory. At the end of Norma's funeral, it was either her funeral or her wake, so that's not what Mormons call it. Viewing. It's a viewing. I was trying to reach in real hard for that word. Uh, being just a toddler, my dad didn't really understand the permanence of what was going on and apparently tried to wake her up. And he said, Norny, Norny, it's time to go home. Let's go home. And I wish that she had made it home. One horrific act changed so many lives. Hurt so many people. So we end our journey at the beginning with a 17-year-old girl named Norma Rodeback, who was an honor student and a member of the future Homemakers of America. She was just a normal girl working a normal job in a normal small town. Before she left for work on June 13th, 1956, Norma had been sewing a dress. She managed to finish it just in time to wear it to work that night. My grandmother remembers it had a flower print on the fabric. Forget-me-nots. So where do we go from here? That was the first thing that I thought after I wrapped up my research for this particular project and finished my last recording. There are so many cases of women who have been largely forgotten in the past, and I would like to go back and revisit those. So what I am considering is taking one person's story and discussing that each episode. They won't all be a full season long, most of them are just going to be one episode long, but I hope that this is a way of bringing attention to cases and women who have maybe fallen through the cracks a little bit uh, due to the time period or the fact that they may be members of a marginalized demographic. I would like to shed a little light on some of them and hear your thoughts as well. As always, I want to thank everyone who has contributed to this podcast and to my research. Again, Elaine Carr um, at the uh, Uinta Historical Resource Center, suddenly, of course, the name escapes me, uh, who has just provided so much information to my friends who have listened to me talk about this and let me get some of my intense feelings off my chest a little bit, some which I have shared with you all as an audience and some which I have kept to myself because I'm not just quite ready to share all of my feelings yet. If you have any further information about Norma or about Carl, or you wish to talk about memories that you may have of them or stories that you've heard passed through members of your family or friends, again, please feel free to reach out to hernamepodcast at gmail.com. There is also a Facebook page uh, that you can look up. I have been going through a bit of a 
a family emergency the last few months, and so I haven't kept up on checking that particular email as much as possible. But I did receive an email from someone who uh, was doing some family research and genealogy, and, and I'm not sure if this person wants to be mentioned by name, so I will just forego her name for now, but she was very kind to reach out and, and share with me the thoughts that she had from some of her family members um, who are part of Carl's family uh, way on down the line. So I appreciate that and I unfortunately did not see her email for quite a while while I was in you know the depths of, of kind of dealing with present day uh, stressors and anxieties. But I really do appreciate that, and it was uh, it was good for me to hear those stories uh, and anecdotes about Carl. Really, uh, I read that email about the same time as I was making my conclusions regarding his uh, his death in this, and his you know looking at him as a as a victim rather than a perpetrator. So it came just at the time that I needed to to hear stories about him um so again i want to thank all of you i know the scheduling aspect of getting episodes out has been rocky and i want to thank you all for sticking with me i promise going forward it will be much more regular uh things are, are starting to settle down a little bit in my personal life and i i have more emotional energy to put toward things like this so please continue to listen, share your thoughts with me, contact me. If you do listen to the, uh, the episodes and you, you find them interesting, it would be super helpful if you left a review, particularly on iTunes, and just let anyone that you know who might enjoy, I don't know, enjoy is probably the wrong word, who might find this interesting, um, let them know about the podcast. And let's, uh, let's get some uh, information out there about Norma and Carl. Thanks so much for listening.